Uh, for the past several weeks, we've been engaged in a series that I've entitled An Enigmatic Messiah from Matthew 11 to 13. And the reason why I've named this series An Enigmatic Messiah is because in, a Ma- in Matthew 11 to uh, 13, Matthew explores the various reasons and even the consequences uh, for the crowd's rejection of Jesus Christ. In spite of all the evidence that Jesus provided for His ministry, the nation of Israel had a hard time accepting Him as the Messiah. And in Matthew 11-13, Matthew takes a look at why this is. Ultimately, we've seen that there's not one single contributing factor that caused the nation to reject Christ. For example, the nation's religious assumptions were one factor that led them to reject Jesus. Jesus looked like the Messiah, but He didn't sound like Him. And this made the people hesitate in accepting Him. Fear was another factor. Because Jesus didn't match the nation's religious expectations, the people were concerned that Jesus would lead them off into judgment, and this made them reluctant to accept Jesus' demands, even with all the evidence that He provided. Last week we looked at the latest contributing factor covered in these chapters, which was the influence of the nation's religious leaders. When we take a step back to look at the big picture, we can see that the populace at large was hesitant to accept Jesus' authority, but they weren't entirely closed off to the idea. Yes, he was unexpected, but at the same time, he was performing some pretty astounding signs that very clearly testified to his power. So, while the crowds weren't sure what to do with Jesus, that didn't mean that they immediately rejected him either. You see this point expressed in Matthew 12, 23, where after the healing of the blind and mute demoniac, the people ask in amazement, can this be the son of David? So what pushed them over the edge? What moved them from the point of kind of a reluctant open-mindedness to outright rejection? And that was the religious leaders. That's what Matthew shows us in the second half of Matthew 12. As the people ask this question, wondering if Jesus could be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, the religious leaders immediately jump in and explain that the exorcism of this blind and mute demoniac comes from Satan, saying, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. They tell this monumental lie to the crowds about Jesus, aimed at deceiving them. And that's that's ultimately what pushes the crowds over the edge to the point of rejection. In the reply that follows this blasphemous accusation, Jesus indicates that His rejection is essentially sealed at this point. The people will not accept the kingdom that He has come to offer because of this evil influence. And so He says the only sign that they will receive from then on would be the sign of Jonah the prophet. He would be three days in the heart of the earth and be resurrected from the dead. It's a devastating reply, really. Through it, Jesus indicates that this generation which rejected Him could expect nothing further but the imminent wrath of God. There would be no participation in the kingdom for them. In fact, on the day of judgment, they would actually be condemned by a collection of Gentiles for their refusal to accept the evidence that Jesus provided. We're currently only about three-quarters of the way through Jesus' response to this blasphemy of the Spirit. We've already seen Jesus explain both the motives and the consequences to the Pharisees' blasphemy of the Spirit. And we've also seen Jesus explain the consequences that would come upon the crowds for their willingness to listen to this blasphemy, we still need to look at the motivations that drove the crowds to follow the Pharisees. And we'll look at that next week in Matthew 12, uh, 43-45. But in the meantime, there's another passage that comes to mind when I see the Pharisees misleading the crowds to this blasphemy of the Spirit. And that's where I want to go this morning. The passage is Luke 12, 1-7. Once again, that's Luke 12, 1-7. So if you would, please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. And as you get settled there, let me set the scene for you and clarify what we're about to encounter. As Luke begins to write chapter 12, he has just described a series of conflicts in Jesus' ministry in Luke 11. 
The first conflict in this series is one that very closely parallels what we have just encountered in Matthew 12. Starting in Luke eleven fourteen, Jesus casts a demon out of a mute man, and the Pharisees claim that he did this by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Sounds pretty familiar, right? It's a situation almost completely identical to the one we just studied in Matthew 12, but it's not the same encounter. It's very much like the situation that we just encountered, but when you harmonize the different gospel accounts, it would appear that this is actually a different encounter in Jesus' ministry, which occurs during a section of His ministry that Matthew actually doesn't even really address in his gospel. In fact, this miracle doesn't appear to have occurred in Galilee, but actually in Judea to a whole different section of Israel and during the latter part of Jesus' ministry as He was getting closer and closer to the cross. It would seem that this is at least the third time in Jesus' ministry that this accusation is being made against Him. It happens twice in Galilee, according to Matthew, and then again here in Judea, according to Luke. And this accusation is happening much later in Jesus' ministry than the first two accusations, this blasphemy of the Spirit. In other words, this accusation, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, doesn't appear to be something that happened just once or twice in Jesus' ministry. It was something that dogged him throughout his ministry. So it shouldn't surprise us that Luke follows up this accusation with a response from Jesus that very closely parallels the response that Jesus gives in Matthew 12. Again, it's not exactly the same if you look there, because it's happening at a different time in Jesus' ministry, but the main points are basically identical. Jesus is being dogged by this persistent lie, and so he has developed a fairly standard response to this accusation that he's issuing on repeated occasions. This is why Luke 12, 1-7 comes to mind when I see what happens in Matthew 12. This is a passage that occurs not long after the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is made during a different point in Jesus' ministry. And I'm interested in this passage because I think we can learn a very powerful lesson from this passage about how we, as Christ's disciples, can avoid falling under the sway of corrupt religious leaders. I said at the conclusion of last week's message that every individual will be held accountable for their response to Christ. No one who rejects Christ will be able to tell God on the day of judgment, I was just following orders, and be excused for it. Absolutely everyone is responsible to respond to what they know about God, even when their leadership is encouraging them to ignore the truth. So how do we avoid falling under the influence of that kind of corrupt leadership? I want us to study this passage, because in this passage, I think Luke shows us the answer to that question in this response from Jesus. Through Jesus' response, Luke is going to show us how leadership manages to manipulate the masses and what we need to do in response to avoid that kind of influence. So that's part of the context for our passage today. We have this repeat of the blasphemy of the Spirit in Luke eleven, fourteen to 36. Then in Luke eleven thirty seven to 54, Luke concludes this chapter with an encounter between Jesus and a Pharisee who asked to have lunch with him. In this encounter, the Pharisee is astonished to observe that Jesus doesn't wash according to the tradition of the Pharisees. And note Jesus' response to his astonishment, because in this response, he addresses what is going to be our subject for today, which is the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Look at verses 39 to 41 of Luke 11. Jesus says, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, and inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside... Make the inside also. But give his alms, those things are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. Jesus then continues by launching in, so he rejects this whole idea that he wasn't obedient to the law for washing in a way that wasn't, or not washing in the way that was prescribed. And then he continues by launching into a series of woes denouncing all the ways in which the Pharisees practiced their hypocrisy, saying, Woe to you, literally trouble or despair to you. Woe to you, Pharisees. Look here, verse 42. He says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. 
These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Look here, verse verse 46, he says, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers have killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for you killed them, and you build their tombs. And then look at verse 52. He says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken... Note here, look at what he says here. For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Again, talking about the corrupt influence of these religious leaders and their hypocrisy. And then, we, and then uh, Luke finishes this chapter by writing in verses 53 to 54, and he went away, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So that's the context. There's the religious leaders who are out to hunt after Jesus because of his rebuke of their practice of the law. And then we have our verses in Luke 12, 1-7. And Luke writes this, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, First, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you are uh, of more value than many sparrows. Now, Jesus has some counsel here for His disciples. But I want you to note that when Luke begins this passage, he states that this counsel was given, quote, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. So Luke says that this all happened in the meantime. And this is important to grasping this verse. Luke says that all this happened in the meantime, and this all begs the question, at what time? At what time is the meantime? And well, that would be uh, just after the circumstances which have just occurred. Chiefly, the situation in which the Pharisees are plotting against Jesus as a result of these series of rebukes that He has given both to them and to the crowds. Luke describes the situation further. He says that this happened in the meantime when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. On the surface, this large crowd may simply seem to point to Jesus' popularity at this point in His ministry. However, Luke presents the size of this crowd in really an almost threatening way. This is a crowd where people are packed and and smashed together. Luke doesn't present this as an orderly or civil crowd. Rather, people are pressing into one another and stepping on top of one another. Now, to be sure, this isn't a riot or chaos, but the crush of the crowd can be felt in this situation. As one commentator states, he says, Among the reasons for the size of this multitude, there may well have been these two. A... Interest in Jesus as spellbinder and miracle worker. And B, curiosity aroused by the controversy between Jesus and His Pharisaic opponents. In other words, in the meantime, opens up the possibility for a crowd that is mixed with those who love Jesus and want to be near Him, as well as those who are curious about what He is saying and those who want to hear more and also those who hate Him. 
and are trying to destroy Him. I believe that the picture that Luke is attempting to paint here is one in which there is a crowd that is gathered together where there is a tangible and animated excitement about Jesus. There's a buzz in the air as Jesus is moving through this crowd, but it's also it's louder than a mere buzz. In short, while the crowd is under control, there is such a feeling of excitement, both positive and negative, about Jesus that it can feel as if chaos is about to break out. It's noisy, it's sweaty, there's pushing and shoving. Imagine there's the yell of people crying out for the miracle worker to help them. There are mockers mocking and jeering Jesus, and yet there are others who are just trying to push their way to the front to see Him, to see what it's all about. It's the type of crowd that when you're in the middle of it, you feel like you can't breathe. And you think that at any moment, you're going to lose your balance and all the shoving and get trampled under the feet of thousands of people who are too distracted to notice and who can't hear your pleas for help. These are the circumstances. And Jesus' disciples are in the middle of it. It's bewildering. It's frightening. They don't know what to do or think, and I wouldn't be surprised if Jesus can see it on their faces. Luke 12, 1 continues, says, He began to say to His disciples first, The disciples are afraid, and Jesus knows it. So He turns to Him first. That is to say, He addresses His disciples primarily. He's speaking to them. But he also does so with an earshot of the crowds so that they're able to hear they're able to hear what he's saying. He turns to his disciples and he opens his mouth to instruct them. And what does he say to these frightened disciples? He says, "Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy." I remember reading these this verse Uh, and being initially confused by this response. Hypocrisy. Here's this massive crowd pushing uh, pushing in around Jesus under the circumstances described in chapter 11. There's a feeling in the air that things are about to spin out of control. And when Jesus turns to speak to His disciples, to to share His concern for them, to give them wisdom, to instruct them, He starts talking about hypocrisy. Why does he do that here? Why is that the thing he wants to address in the middle of this chaotic crowd? I had a really hard time understanding the statement until I started to search the scripture for Jesus' discussion of hypocrisy in other instances. It was in the process of this study that it hit me. Jesus talks to his disciples about hypocrisy here because they're afraid. And fear leads to hypocrisy. How does this work? How is it that fear leads to hypocrisy? Let me break down, let me break it down for you. Let me show you the science and engineering of hypocrisy. That is, let me explain to you how hypocrisy works, how all its parts fit together in motion, and then we can understand Jesus' response here. So, how is it that fear leads to hypocrisy? The answer has to do with a person's desires. Biblically speaking, hypocrisy begins with a desire to please man rather than to please God. By definition, a hypocrite is a person who acts one way on the outside in public when they're really a different person on the inside or in private. A hypocrite pretends that they have a certain level of righteousness when in fact they do not possess that. The Pharisees were hypocrites by the classic definition of the word. In Matthew 23, Jesus confronts the scribes and the Pharisees after they have repeatedly tried to discredit Him during Passion Week with a series of difficult religious questions. Jesus sees the hardness of their heart and He lashes out at them in righteous anger. Starting in verse 13 of Matthew 23, He pronounces a series of woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees that is nearly identical to the series of woes we read just a moment ago in Luke 11. However, in the verses uh, before this series of woes, Jesus describes the Pharisees' motivation for their external righteousness. 
He says in verses 5 to 7 of Matthew 23, he says, They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Why do the Pharisees display external righteousness and not internal righteousness? It's because they want to be admired by men, Jesus says. They love the approval of others. This is also why they display their prayer or fasting or their giving publicly in the way that they do in Matthew 6. It's a, it's a display that Jesus rebukes because they're desiring to be praised by others, to be seen by others. They're not really interested in such righteousness. Rather, they're interested in others thinking that they're interested in that righteousness. So it begins with a desire. It begins with this desire to please men. Now, desire to please man has a completely different goal than true righteousness. According to Jesus in Matthew 22, true righteousness stems from a desire to love God, which will likewise lead to a desire to love other people. That's what true righteousness is. Therefore, we have two different destinations for the hypocrite and the truly righteous. The hypocrite desires to be pleasing to man. The one who seeks true righteousness wants to love God as expressed through love for other people. It should be obvious that there's going to be a problem here. Since we have two different destinations, it makes sense that they're going to lead to two different sets of decisions. The hypocrite is going to make decisions that lead to gaining the respect of men who are sinful, and he's going to do so out of a love for self, meaning that he will make decisions that gratify himself. The truly righteous is going to make decisions that lead to a demonstration of a love for God, who is actually righteous, and he's going to do it out of a love for God and others, meaning that he will make decisions that demonstrate a concern for God and for other people. Now, of course, this means that the hypocrite is going to be primarily concerned with external manifestations of righteousness because these things are the things that receive praise from men, not internal righteousness. But make no mistake, even though the hypocrite appears to be righteous, his goals are counter to true righteousness. And this motive will ultimately be betrayed by his actions. Unfortunately, there's a total lack of love for others in hypocrisy. Again, because it's not built for love. Hypocrisy doesn't aim to help other people. It aims to exalt self. And to even do so at the expense of other people. And because of this, a culture of fear, not godly fear, not fear of God, but fear of man, develops around the hypocrite. If someone confesses a sin, the hypocrite uses this as an opportunity to exalt their self-righteousness, either by condemning the sinner rather than helping them, or in a more Christianized environment, perhaps by condescendingly feigning concern in an effort to make themselves look good. If someone confronts the hypocrite over their sin, rather than humbly accepting that correction out of a concern for genuine righteousness, the hypocrite attacks the confronter in order to save face. In this way, hypocrisy is a type of parasite. The hypocrite gains his strength through the process of weakening others because all the hypocrite desires is that others recognize his greatness. There's no love or concern for others in him. In fact, he will even get what he wants by hurting other people, by attacking the other person's lack of righteousness in an effort to exalt his own. This is exactly what the Pharisees were doing to Jesus in Luke 11 and 12. Jesus performs a righteous act, and they call him demonic. And he subsequently confronts them over their sin, and they seek to destroy him. Hypocrisy creates a toxic toxic atmosphere in which people are consistently harmed. And sadly, since most are either unbelievers or undiscerning believers who lack the ability to identify counterfeit righteousness, the hypocrite soon intimidates his way to gain a majority position by threatening to harm those who do not accept his same position. A perfect example of this is found in John 9. 
There a man is, uh, who is born blind has been healed by Jesus on the Sabbath. That was a big no-no, according to the Pharisees, false external righteousness. We've seen that in Matthew 12, right? Now, such a miracle should be a cause for the Pharisees to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. That's a messianic sign. But the Pharisees lack genuine righteousness, so instead they see this demonstration of messianic power and righteousness as a threat. So rather than believe in Jesus, the Pharisees try to intimidate the testimony of the blind man by reminding him that they are disciples of Moses and threaten to kick him and his family out of the synagogue. And sadly, this works with the man's parents. They refuse to testify about Jesus out of fear of getting kicked out of the synagogue. The man, meanwhile, testifies boldly to Christ, to which the Pharisees conclude, you were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? And they kick him out of the synagogue. This is the way of the hypocrite. The hypocrite uses intellectual and social intimidation and mockery. Again, this is because there is no love in hypocrisy. There is no desire in the hypocrite to truly help someone who may be caught in a sin. They only desire to make others conform so that the hypocrite gets the most credit for their supposed righteousness that they can. This is what happens with the crowds and the Pharisees in places like Matthew 12 as well. The crowds start to perceive that something is right with Jesus, but they think that they're not smart enough to recognize the Messiah on their own. You wonder where they got that idea, right? Based off of John 9. They think they need the Pharisees to approve Him. And the Pharisees have encouraged this thought by regularly reminding the people of how stupid they are in comparison with themselves. As the hypocrite then builds a majority through intimidation... Righteousness becomes defined by the hypocrite's external practices rather than by genuine righteousness. Before long, those who do wish to pursue true righteousness find themselves in the minority. They may attempt to argue for their viewpoint, but when they do, they are shouted down or mocked or cast away from the group since they're not, they don't fit the hypocrite's mold. When someone refuses to conform to the mold... They are harassed, not helped. They are punished, not loved. The few discerning righteous who remain in this type of a situation are faced with a choice. They can either conform or they can face the wrath of the majority. That's an incredibly hard choice to make. As we will see, it's in moments like this that a person's faith in God is truly tested. Fear and intimidation are incredibly effective agents in spreading an ideology because very few like discomfort and most are ill-equipped to handle it. It's just easier to go with the flow than get involved in a confrontation. It's easier to turn the other way when we see this process begin to happen and deal with it. In this way, hypocrisy is incredibly infectious. That's why Jesus calls it leaven. Leaven spreads. You put a little bit of leavening agent into a lump of dough and it spreads to the whole lump. That's how hypocrisy works. It spreads. And that's what makes it so dangerous. In fact, I can't think of a sin that has more potential to to do damage to the body of Christ, the church, than hypocrisy. And just so you know, I'm not exaggerating that either. I spent a lot of time thinking about that over the years, and I mean that. And I say that because the environment of fear created by the hypocrite puts a complete end to the processes required for sanctification and growth in the church. In order for the church to grow, we need to be able to speak the truth to one another in love. We need to be able to confess our sins and seek help from our brothers and sisters. And when we are caught in a sin, we need the loving words of our church family to confront us over the truth and firmly but gently call us to it. But the atmosphere of fear and intimidation created by the hypocrite makes this such a painful process to go through that no one really wants to speak up and talk about the real, actual sins that they're struggling with when they're hanging out with a hypocrite. 
So they put on a facade, and the sin goes untreated. And yet in private, it's festering just beneath the surface. Hypocrisy shuts down the repentance process for everyone that's surrounding it. There's a legend that comes to us from Russia during the 1700s. In this legend, after the Russian Empire successfully captured Crimea, the Russian empress came to inspect the captured land in a journey down the Dnieper River. As the legend goes, the Russian minister responsible for the campaign, a man by the name of Gregory Potemkin, built fake villages all along the riverside in order to impress the Russian empress with their military conquest. And in reality, these villages were nothing more than empty facades. But they gave the impression of wealth and abundance in what was basically a barren land. Once hypocrisy infiltrates the body of Christ, the church can become a Potemkin village. It can look prosperous on the outside. But lying beneath the facade is a barren wasteland of sin and despair. While a church may withstand the doctrinal punches presented by outsiders, such as the secular humanist or the liberal, hypocrisy can cause a church to die while standing on its feet. By eating away at its spiritual vitality from the inside, it can create a theologically informed corpse which holds to the form of godliness but denies its power. So jumping back to Luke 12, when this near chaotic crowd gathers as a result of the tension that's being created because of the righteous actions that Jesus has put on display, Jesus in His perfect wisdom sees through the initial reaction that the disciples are likely having in this situation, which is fear, and He sees the coming result of this fear, which is hypocrisy. And He tells the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy. In this verse and in the verses which follows, Jesus then gives His disciples instructions regarding how they are to defend against hypocrisy. And we won't have time to go over all of these instructions today. So this morning, I'm just going to offer you four instructions, four defenses against hypocrisy uh, that we find in verses 1-7 to so that we, as a body of Christ, can prevent its its soul-destroying efforts from infiltrating our church. The first defense against hypocrisy is this. Beware. Beware. Watch out. You see this in the very first statement that Jesus makes in this section. He says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The danger of hypocrisy is that it's so subtle. It's not like many sins whose frontal attacks are obvious. It's not like the temptation to lie or lust or covet, things that are obviously wrong, though there is still pressure to conform to them. Hypocrisy is dangerous because it's a Trojan horse. It takes an appealing form, it clothes itself in what looks like righteousness so that it can get in behind your defenses. It sneaks in. Truth is, there are many people who are hypocrites who don't even realize it. They believe they are righteous. I think this is why Jesus even gives this instruction first in this series of instructions. On one hand, He probably says this first because this talks about the topic He's going to discuss. You know, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, that introduces the subject. He's going to be talking about hypocrisy. But this is also logical. He brings up hypocrisy before he even begins to deal with the application. Defending against hypocrisy requires a proactive effort. It takes a certain level of urgency because once it takes root, it's nearly impossible to get rid of it. Again, the fear created by hypocrisy essentially stops the repentance process. So once it takes root, it's virtually impossible to get rid of because very few are going to speak up about it. And even those who will, will gain few followers because they're all too terrified to break away from the group. So one must be very urgent in dealing with hypocrisy. It must be dealt with before it takes root, not after. You have to be proactive when it comes with dealing with hypocrisy, not reactive. So this is really the logical place to begin. And that's where Jesus begins in this setting as well, by telling His disciples to look out for hypocrisy. He deals with the fruit of their fear before dealing with the root of it. 
Because he's telling them, watch out, this is what your fear is going to lead to. He puts them on alert. How's the disciple to look out for hypocrisy? What are we watching for? And I'll just kind of say this as a side note. At this point, I think it's, it's likely we can begin to want to be, look out, to be on the lookout for hypocrisy, infiltrating the church through other people. Like we hear this command from Jesus and we think, I'm to be on the lookout for hypocrisy, uh, that means I'm waiting for other people to do X and Y actions, and then I'll know that they're a hypocrite and I'll nail them. And what's interesting, though, is that Jesus doesn't exactly tell His disciples about how to look out for hypocrisy in others, right? And this makes sense because that outward focus actually plays into the hands of the hypocrite. Hypocrisy craves the external because that is the depth to which man sees. God sees inwardly. In the directions which follows, Jesus talks to His disciples about their own heart attitudes, not the actions of others, because the truth is that this is where righteousness stands or falls. It's with what happens from the heart. The best defense against hypocrisy in the body of Christ is to make sure that you don't succumb to it. If we manage to get ourselves under control such that we do not fall to hypocrisy, then the righteousness of our lives will stand in contrast to the hypocrites, just as Jesus' life did. And we will boldly proclaim righteousness just as Jesus did, and we'll do it in a righteous way, not hypocritically. So our first defense against hypocrisy is simply this. Beware, be vigilant. Don't sleep on the heart attitudes that will bear hypocrisy's fruit. Keep your guard up so that it does not sneak into your life. Watch out for the fear that Jesus is talking about here. Because that's what's going to produce this hypocrisy. The second defense against hypocrisy is to remember God's plan. Jesus says in verses 2-3, to Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Here Jesus begins to cover the false, uncover the false thinking in the mind of the genuine believer who falls to hypocrisy. When we examine this verse, our initial thought may be that Jesus is addressing your run-of-the-mill hypocrisy. Your typical hypocrite, your pharisaical hypocrite, will act righteous in public, But then when they're alone amongst friends, their true nature comes out. When the audience that they want to impress is taken away, suddenly they reveal their true sinful selves. It may sound like Jesus is talking about this type of hypocrisy. In this instance, He would be issuing a warning that that these secret things will one day be made known in the Day of Judgment. But if you stop to think about it, the disciples aren't wrestling with this kind of hypocrisy, are they? They're not claiming belief in Jesus to be popular, but denying Him in private. It's the other way around. They believe in Him in private, and they're afraid of proclaiming Him publicly. Now we could take Jesus' words here as a warning to them. Their private righteousness will one day be proclaimed to all, but that doesn't make sense either. To say, uh, you better watch out, because one day it's going to be revealed you were righteous all along. (laughs) That's not really much of a warning, right? So what is he talking about? There's one other instance in which Jesus said words like this, and we looked at it a few weeks ago in Matthew 10. After his baptism by John, Jesus went out proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was a proclamation that the Messiah, Jesus, had arrived, and that Israel would repent, should repent of their unbelief and unrighteousness in preparation for his kingdom. In Matthew 10, if you you recall, Jesus commissions the disciples to proclaim this same message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in in the process, he says to them, Matthew 10, 26-27, he says, So have no fear of them, For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. And then he says, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. 
And there's some differences there between Matthew 10 and Luke 12. In Matthew 10, Jesus speaks in the darkness. In Luke 12, it's the disciples who are speaking in the darkness. In Matthew 10, there is the command to speak and proclaim. In Luke 12, there is no command. Rather, this idea that what is said in the dark will be heard in the light is given as a mere statement of fact. So how does the comparison of these passages affect our understanding of what's happening here in Luke 12? Well, when we look at these two statements together, we can understand that what is hidden or covered that will be revealed is not the sin or the righteousness of the disciples, or anyone else for that matter, but the kingdom realities of Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus told them in the dark to proclaim in the light in Matthew 10. And that is also what the disciples are here speaking in the dark in their fear which will also be proclaimed in the light at the end of the age. You see, while Jesus' popularity is being threatened, His disciples may start to forget where their ministry is going. Jesus doesn't look much like a Messiah in a a moment like this. And they may forget that Jesus is King. Fear also does a very good job of distracting you from uh, other realities. It fogs the mind so you can't think clearly. It obscures or exaggerates the moment that you're in disproportionately to what reality is. Fear can make you forget about consequences and think about the present moment only. In their fear, the disciples may be forgetting about the future. There's there's a reconciliation coming and may be thinking only about the present. In this moment, Jesus is reminding them while the crowds are pressing in around Him, hostile. He's telling them, look, this may look bad right now, but remember God's plan. Remember what I told you about my coming kingdom. There is a day coming when my power and reign will be made obvious. What you have said in secret about me will 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 resound throughout the earth. In that day, everyone will know who I truly am. This may not look good right now, but remember, I am indeed God's king. And although others may try to intimidate you now by calling you ignorant and unrighteous, There is a day coming when you and I will be vindicated. There is a day coming where everyone will know that you were indeed correct in what you believed about me. Fix your eyes on that day. I hope you regularly, regularly remember what your salvation is going to result in. Because that is what is going to strengthen you to resist the fear and intimidation of corrupt religious leaders. How does remembering God's plan strengthen you to stand firm against fear and intimidation? Well, remembering God's plan reminds you that the suffering that comes with pursuing righteousness will only be temporary. In times of suffering, we may cry out as David did, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Suffering can seem unbearable when there's no end in sight. Here, Jesus reminds His disciples, how long? Just a little while longer. Remembering God's plan also reminds you that though the wicked prosper for a period of time, God is still in control. Though it looks like Jesus is not in control, He is. Present wickedness may create a fear of the wicked that distorts reality and causes you to think that the wicked will be victorious and your efforts to pursue Christ will have been in vain. Remembering God's plan for the future reminds us that God has not lost control. Rather, the present suffering is actually part of His perfect plan and His authority will be made known at the proper time. In addition, remembering God's plan reminds you that you will be vindicated. When the majority is against you, humility can cause you to begin to doubt what you believe. You begin to think, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe everyone else is right. Or you may even begin to think as you proclaim the gospel, what's the point? Nobody believes, everyone thinks I'm a fool, and you can grow discouraged. What will help you stay strong in your proclamation is to remember that one day it will be shown that you are not a fool, you are a messenger sent from God. The apostles knew this, and regularly reminded of those suffering for their faith, of the present salvation and vindication to come in their letters. Remembering God's plan also reminds you of the great reward of your salvation, Even though the world denies Jesus now, there is coming a time when Jesus will return and reign over the earth. And when that time comes, you will get to see Him 
And you will get to live under His merciful and righteous reign. You will get to enjoy all the benefits that comes with knowing Jesus Christ. All the benefits of the kingdom of God. The chief of which is the opportunity to actually see God. Remembering this helps you endure the suffering that comes with righteousness because as great as the suffering is, you can know that your reward is yet greater. Fear can make you think only about your present success or comfort or a desire for present success and comfort can lead to fear. In those moments when you're tempted to hypocrisy, you must remember that one day Jesus will indeed be victorious. This will help you to see how your present suffering fits into your future reality. It will remind you that God's course has not been derailed. Evil will not be victorious. It will remind you that the truth you proclaim will be, will be made known and you will be vindicated in your suffering, but it will happen in God's timing. In short, you must remember God's plan. The third defense against hypocrisy is to remember God's power. Jesus says in verses 4-5, to I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear Him. In these two verses, Jesus really continues the thought that He started in verses 2-3. to He points to the future, but He does it from a different angle. He reminds the disciples of God's superior power as displayed through His divine judgment. The hypocrite respects the power of man and that they believe that, uh, they believe that uh, men and the praise that they give can make them happy. Conversely, the hypocrites also believe that the judgment of men has the power to make them unhappy. So they attempt to conform their lives according to what will avoid that judgment. The disciples in particular are fearful of the judgment that they could receive from this threatening crowd. In one sense, they are thinking about the future, right? They are concerned that there's going to be something happening in the near future that in the worst case scenario could result in their death. Here Jesus tells the disciples, no, you're not looking far enough. Keep going so they kill you. Then what? Then what will they do? Death acts as a kind of sieve that filters out what is ultimately of value versus what is not. It is through this lens that Jesus once again brings reality back into focus for His disciples. The threats posed by the hypocrite look intimidating in the moment. The scorn received from people feels powerful in the moment. Death reminds a person who truly has power. The reality is that as much as fellow human beings may act as if they can bring us great harm, if we do not conform to their wishes, the reality is that they too are dependent creatures who rely on an, on a, an, on an omnipotent God for their existence. Death reveals this. Death reveals that we are not our own. We are not independent beings. We are all in God's hand. People may be given a certain level of authority while we live on this earth, and they may use this authority to persecute the righteous, but only for a period of time. At death, all the authority that has been given to them on loan vanishes, and it returns to the one who has true authority, God Himself. So man might be able to make you suffer, but for how long? At most, could they maybe extend that suffering into several years? What about God? What authority does He have? Jesus says He has authority to cast into hell. Hell is a place, of course, where the the sinful people of the earth are, are justly tormented under the wrath of God eternally, forever, for their rebellion against a righteous, holy, and good God. So if we want to start making our decisions based off of what type of pain we're going to receive for wrong actions... Jesus says, well, let's at least get our fear straight then here. Who's really more fearful, man or God? Who is it more important to please? Even if you're thinking about suffering, right? Who's who's it more important to please? As the disciples remember who really has power, they ought to realize that they should attempt to do what is pleasing in His sight, in God's sight, rather than what's pleasing in man's sight. Therefore, if we want to hope to avoid hypocrisy, we must remember God's power. The fourth defense against hypocrisy is listed in verses 6 to 7. Remember God's care. It reads, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? 
and not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. In this verse, Jesus provides a contrast with the statement he's just made. Note what he says in the second half of verse 7. He says, fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. This is strange. Why would Jesus say in one verse, fear, and then in another, fear not? On one hand, Jesus is merely taking what the disciples already know about God, and he's using it to comfort them. Being the masterful teacher that he is, Jesus provides a very simple illustration here. Sparrows, of course, were the the cheapest things sold in the market at this time. Regarding these sparrows, Jesus says, God remembers. Uh, the idea is that he, God has them present in his mind and he cares for them. He says, God remembers even a single sparrow. Why do you think he won't care about you? This is a simple argument from lesser to greater. God cares for the little sparrow. Of course, he cares for the disciples too. And so Jesus is telling the disciples, if you suffer, at least know that you do so under God's care. In times of suffering, it's easy to think that God has forgotten us. It's easy to, think, to ask the question, why is this happening to me? Why would God let this happen when I'm trying to be obedient to Him? In those dark moments, we can either begin to doubt ourselves that somehow we're being disobedient, or we can begin to doubt God, either that He's lost control or that He doesn't care for our suffering. Jesus is telling His disciples, even when you suffer, God is in control and His love and care have not departed from you. As Paul says in Romans eight twenty-eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, again, Paul's not saying that everything that happens to us is good. Evil things happen. Yet there is a way in which God can cause all things to come together for good, all things, even suffering. There are numerous ways that we could all list in which we've experienced God's blessing in the midst of suffering, and Jesus is reminding of His disciples of this to strengthen them to persevere in the midst of these results. So on one hand, Jesus is merely taking what the disciples already know about God, and He's using it to strengthen them to endure suffering. But I think there's something else going on here as well. I want you to return for a moment to our discussion of fear. Let me ask you this. Is fighting hypocrisy as simple as fearing God more than you fear man? Is it as simple as obeying God out of a desire to please God enough that He won't punish you? And that should be sending alarms off in your mind, right? I think there's this gut reaction in us that tells us that obeying God, just because He has the bigger stick, doesn't really seem right. And it isn't. If we seek to render obedience to God simply because He won't punish us. Do you know what that is ultimately? It's self-righteousness. It's salvation by works. And do you know what else it is? It's hypocrisy. Jesus explains in Matthew 22 that all the law and the prophets pointed to these two things, how to love God and how to love others. And really He says the second, which is loving others, is like the first, which is loving God. Do you know what kind of obedience God is ultimately pleased with? It's an obedience that comes out of a love for Him. Is obedience through fear then pleasing to God? If that's all it is, no. Because it is obedience that is done, that kind of obedience is obedience that is done merely out of a love for self. It's self-preservation. The person who desires to save the person desires to save themselves, so they obey. However, they are never once motivated to obey out of a love for God, right? Just out of fear. And what are they doing? They're going through the motions of obeying God on the outside, but inside, who do they really love? It's themselves. In fact, this is why self-righteous obedient actually cannot ever be pleasing to God. It is done out of a love for self, not God. Which means it isn't righteous. Fear of God alone will not steer a person away from hypocrisy. Fear actually can only produce hypocrisy. There is a righteous response to the fear of God and a wrong response to the fear of God. The right response leads to life and the wrong response leads to death. A number of years ago, I think I've told you this story before. I don't know if you remember it or not, but... 
a number of years ago, my wife and I were vacationing in Sequoia in a national park. And we were going for a hike. And uh, the day before the hike, we had had breakfast with an Italian couple that was staying at the bed and breakfast we were at. And they were telling us about all these bears they had seen the day before. They had actually taken a picture like five feet away, a bear standing behind them. I'm going, I don't know why you're turning your back on a bear. It's like five feet behind you, but they were okay with it. We were, we were going for a hike one day, and I remember thinking as we started this hike, you know, maybe we should have worn some bear bells. Uh, but we didn't. I figured, what's the, what's the odds, right, that we're going to come across a bear? So we go walking along, and there's this part of the trail where there's a huge sequoia tree laying over the trail, and we can't see what's on the other side. And we have to walk around it. So we walk around the, the tree, kind of climb over part of it and get around the tree, and we're walking down the trail. I had my head down, and all of a sudden Emily freezes. And she goes, Ryan, stop. I'm like, what? She goes, look up ahead of us. And we look up there, and there's this bear looking down the trail, kind of nose up in the air, sniffing. <laughs> and uh, all I can remember thinking at the moment is run. Run, you know, because here's this bear standing in the trail. It's not 50 yards ahead of us looking down the path at us. And uh, Emily goes, what do we do? And I don't know much about wilderness survival, but I did read in a book somewhere that you don't, if you want to survive a predator, you don't act like prey. So you don't run. You know, if you act like prey, then they'll chase you. That's encouraging them. Um, and so uh, Emily's going, what do we do? And I, and I go, okay, just, uh, just back up slowly. Don't turn your back. We'll just kind of back up slowly. We'll get around this tree and we'll walk away, you know. And uh, we did that. We backed up slowly, walked around the tree, got around the tree, walked away. Bear continues on. There are three bear cubs behind it <laughs> uh, right after that. So we were glad we didn't get any closer. Uh, my point is that you there's this instinctive part of us that tells us to get a, as far away from danger as possible. And this isn't always good, right? That instinctive idea to run can actually produce a situation where we confound the problem. You know, we have this, this instinctive part of us that tells us to get away from danger as fast as possible. This is good. God gave us that ability to perceive danger for our preservation. However, in our fear, because it clouds our thinking, that fear can also lead us to make wrong choices that can aggravate the situation. You can make a choice in your fear that can make the situation worse. And it's the same way with God. We perceive the danger that God presents to us, and we think, run or we, or we think, give him something so he goes away and won't come after me in his anger. Here's the problem. Where are you going to run from God? Where are you going to escape Him? And what are you going to give to a holy God who owns all things? When you encounter the fear of God, there's only one option. It is to run. But it is to run to God, not away from Him. Once we begin to run to God in our fear, what we discover is that God is not some sort of divine bully who simply must have His way, no matter what the cost to everyone else. Rather, what we find is a gracious, kind God who is eager to forgive our sins. In truth, the hypocrite doesn't understand this. They think God is unloving. They think God only wants to perform, wants them to perform certain actions while having little care with how those actions affect us or how we're feeling on the inside about them while we do them. The hypocrite thinks God is content with our unhappiness so long as we do what He wants. He has no real concern with the success or suffering of His creation. He only wants us to do what He wants. The hypocrite doesn't believe that God is good which is why they don't love Him, and it's why they don't run to Him. Jesus reminds His disciples in these verses that God does care. It's evident in the creation. He cares even for the smallest sparrow, which means that we should run to God in fear, run to Him in fear, not away from Him. And once there, once we run to God in fear, what we find is a good God in whom we can delight and desire to obey. 
And then, and only then, are we offering a consistent obedience, right? From the heart outwards, which is pleasing to God. So in review, how does ungodly leadership manage to pressure and manipulate their followers to reject the truth? It's through fear. Fear leads to hypocrisy. And how can you manage to resist that kind of pressure? Four ways. First, you must beware. You must be on the lookout for hypocrisy so that you can address it before it takes root in your heart. Second, you must remember God's plan. You must remember that the same truth that the world presently rejects will one day be vindicated by God on the day of your salvation. Third, you must remember God's power. You must remember that God is more powerful than man and that it is therefore more important to seek His approval by standing for the truth than to seek man's approval by denying it. And finally, you must remember God's care. You must remember that no matter the amount of suffering that ungodly leadership is trying to inflict on you, God knows it, He understands it, and whatever suffering He allows you to endure by standing for His truth, He allows it in love. And once again, once that period of trial is past, He will deliver you from it. This is how we will ultimately resist the sort of pressure that we encounter as we try to cling to the gospel, the sort of pressure that we've seen on display in Matthew 12. It's by simply trusting in the goodness, the greatness, and the wisdom of God. So let's close by demonstrating this kind of trust as we go to the Lord in prayer, asking Him to give us strength to lean on Him. Let's pray.